Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Lung Cancer, which is part one of Living with Lung Cancer. And this is an important program in which you're going to hear lots of updates on the treatment of lung cancer and on progress in the treatment of, of lung cancer. Now, today's program is supported by Abby, Pfizer, and Takeda Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. There's over 307 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States and from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Croatia, Egypt, India, Iraq, Israel, Istanbul, Laos, Poland, South Africa, Trinidad, UK, and Venezuela. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before we start the program, I just have a few brief questions that I want to ask each of you. Those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions, and I will read the questions to you, and it'll just take just, it gives us a baseline of what you kind of know coming into the program. So the first question is, I understand the treatment choices for lung cancer, yes or no? And the second question is, I know the role of radiation oncology for lung cancer, yes or no? And the third and last question is, I know how to manage side effects, symptoms, pain, and quality of life concerns, yes or no? I want to thank you all for participating in these brief questions. For those of you who are not live streaming, you'll be getting these questions um, with your um, materials that we send to you um, uh, by mail. And so um, I want to start by introducing our first speaker now. We have wonderful speakers on our program today. And our first speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is a medical oncologist, thoracic oncology and early drug development service, physician ambassador to China and Asia Pacific, Bobst International Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee is going to provide an overview of lung cancer and current standard of care in the context of COVID-19, the role of chemotherapy and targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and I'd like to thank Cancer Care organizers for this opportunity uh, for me to share uh, with uh, patients, uh, caregivers, and, uh, and, and support and supporters uh, about this topic on lung cancer. So when we hear the, the, word, lung, the word lung cancer, it's, it rings a bad connotation. However, I, I'd like to stress that there is hope and there is progress made. In the, uh, despite it, it being the number one uh, uh, cancer killer, uh, in the United States and the world, the incidence and mortality 
uh, have significantly decreased uh, over the years. And recent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine this year had shown a substantial reduction in both incidence and mortality from the years 2013 and 2016. And that effect is ongoing, and we're, gonna, we're seeing incremental improvements in outcomes uh, and incidents every year. And I'm seeing that personally in my practice with patients diagnosed with this terrible disease go on to live their life. So there is hope. And this reduction in incidence and mortality is also occurring across uh, uh, male and female, across all races and ethnic groups. So this is good news uh, uh, as a result of the scientific advances uh, we've made in both cancer screening as well as uh, cancer treatment, in particular uh, the, the use of targeted therapies and immunotherapies. So uh, this is a, an extraordinary year where uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really uh, turned our lives uh, upside down. And that is even more so for our patients struggling and battling cancer. We know that uh, from uh, our studies that COVID-19, uh, the risk of getting COVID-19, also the risk of having complications uh, from COVID-19 are higher in patients with lung cancer. So this, this presents a further challenge for our patients. On the other hand, because of the, uh, the pandemic and the uh, difficulties, and also in many instances, the fear of going into the hospital to get treatment, has led to some delay in diagnosis and treatment of lung cancers and therefore the outcomes. And that is also a problem that we need to address. But thankfully, through a scientifically-based comprehensive management strategy on COVID-19, I can say with confidence that our patients can be treated and managed, diagnosed and managed safely, uh, and minimizing the risk uh, of uh, getting COVID-19 while actively uh, diagnosing and treating their lung cancer for best possible outcomes. That is now achievable. And Dr. Lai will go into some of the technological innovations uh, employed today to address uh, cancer and COVID-19. Now going into the treatment of lung cancer, uh, in terms of the overall treatment paradigm, it's still dependent upon staging. Staging means how early uh, or how advanced uh, the cancer has grown and spread in the body at diagnosis. And this has implications to the type of treatment and, and the expected outcome from treatment. So for example, there are four stages. Stage one and two are considered early stage lung cancers. And I'm talking about, by and large, non-small cell lung cancers. This is the most common type of lung cancer, accounting for 87% of all lung cancers. The other ones are mainly small cell lung cancers, which are treated slightly differently. But zooming in on the uh, non-small cell lung cancers, uh, stage one and two are considered early stage, and they are considered potentially curable 
and therefore every effort should be made to render a cure for these patients. It's not guaranteed, but we have to give it a shot. And by and large, surgery, lung cancer surgery, and radiation therapy are the mainstays of definitive curative intent treatment. So it's either surgery or special type of radiotherapy that Dr. Rosenzweig will get going to uh, more expert uh, details. And it's basically eradicating the early stage lung cancer that's still confined to the lung. And then for some cases, we would follow them up with adjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant being additional to the definitive treatment uh, aiming at a cure to really kill off the microbe metastatic cancer cells that may still be circulating in the bloodstream and that before they take root in other organs like the liver and the bones, we wipe them out with chemotherapy. And that's a, a, a limited, in a limited fashion over a limited time frame, usually about three months uh, of adjuvant chemotherapy and typically intravenous dose uh, once every three weeks, so you end up getting just up to four doses. And in stage three uh, non-small cell lung cancer, this is considered locally advanced, still confined to the chest, but it may have spread to the lymph nodes uh, or the mediastinum uh, in the center of the chest, but not have not left the chest yet. And in this case, a multimodality treatment approach is needed to give the best possible outcome, even a cure in some cases. And here, uh, while the definitive therapy may still be surgery or radiation, often uh, we employed chemotherapy or even chemoimmunotherapy in the clinical trial setting before surgery or after surgery. And before surgery, it's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And after surgery, it's called adjuvant chemotherapy. Patients cannot get surgery uh, or should not get surgery for whatever reason uh, specific to the unique patient. Uh, an alternative would be chemoradiation combined. And this is the definitive treatment aiming at a cure. Uh, we would uh, generally do them together and then employ a course of uh, immunotherapy, as called consolidated immunotherapy after chemoradiation up, up to 12, or up to 12 months uh, maintenance. And this has been shown in randomized trials to increase the chance of cure. And, uh, and then you have the stage four setting, which is actually the most commonest presentation in lung cancer, uh, uh, where it's left beyond the lungs uh, into other organs or the pleura, which is the covering of the lungs. And in this case, treatment is, is palliative, meaning it's making the symptoms go away, improving quality of life, but also extending life, extending survival. And in this setting, because it's in the system, we use a medical therapy whether it's intravenous or a pill, we would like to get a medicine into the system to treat every cancer cell out there. And that's largely in the form of chemotherapy or immunotherapy that's revving up the immune system, your own immune cells to go and attack the cancer, 
uh, or targeted therapy that's dependent on the genetic subtype of the cancer and then targeting a specific uh, gene with a certain molecule and then trying to switch off the cancer cell signaling and let it die with that approach. Sometimes it's in the form of a pill and sometimes it's still in the form of intravenous treatment. Uh, and, uh, and certainly Dr. Lai will be sharing some of the latest advances uh, in this setting as well. Uh, so my, finally, my main message is, yes, despite lung cancer being a terrible diagnosis, there is definitely hope and we are making progress. And I would encourage everyone uh, to talk to their doctors uh, about the latest advances. Uh, and, and we ought to do everything possible uh, to, to give hope and uh, of the best outcome. Thank you for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lee, and what a wonderful setting for the whole program today, that there is hope, there are treatments out there, and um, so uh, excellent. Thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Victoria Lay. Dr. Lay is um, Assistant Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lay will be addressing the role of precision medicine in informing treatment options, managing side effects, symptoms, pain, and quality of life concerns, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, which are key, key questions to ask your healthcare team during these appointments. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lai. Um, hi, um, uh, this is Vicki Lai from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, thank you very much for the uh, kind introduction, Dr. Mesner. And, um, I just want to thank Cancer Care uh, as well as the Longevity Foundation for putting together this program for our patients and uh, families and caregivers um, and uh, very much appreciate the opportunity to talk for a few minutes about the topics that um, Dr. Messner just um, outlined. Um, first, I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of precision medicine in informing treatment options. And this concept of precision medicine is really about how can we tailor treatments to each patient individually based on biological characteristics of their cancer. So in 2020, um, currently for lung cancer, specifically non-small cell lung cancer, which I'll focus the first part of this um, discussion, um, it, uh, doing very complete and detailed molecular profiling and genetic testing of your cancer tissue is, um, is absolutely the standard of care. Um, oftentimes, we will use a type of technology called next-generation sequencing, which is very, very detailed, a very detailed look at uh, either the cancer tissue itself or uh, a newer type of technology is where we can uh, collect peripheral blood, so just a regular blood sample from patients um, who, who have been diagnosed with lung cancer. And as the tumor cells die, the tumor cells will shed pieces of DNA into the bloodstream. And so by collecting the blood, we can actually pick up these pieces of DNA and sequence them much like how we can sequence uh, biopsies or solid uh, cancer tissue. Uh, so uh, both of these technologies have really uh, pushed um, our field forward, and the reason that it's very important to get this testing done, in my opinion, at initial diagnosis is it gives us a complete profile of your cancer at the starting point, because sometimes as you move along your treatment uh, course, uh, you, your, the, the 
biological characteristics or profile of the cancer may change slightly depending on the type of treatments that the cancer has been exposed to. And there is a significant proportion of non-small cell lung cancers that have what are called oncogenic drivers or uh, essentially mutations that occur, and that's really the driving force behind what uh, is causing the normal cells in your lungs to become cancer cells. So some of the most common, uh, some of the most well-known characterized mutations include uh, EGFR, uh, ALK, uh, ROS1, BRAF, um, and in fact, it's either mutations in these genes or what are called rearrangements or fusions that result in a different type of protein product that really is driving the development of the cancer. Uh, more recent research has identified additional um, targetable uh, uh, genes or alterations such as Entract, uh, Medexon 14, RET, um, HER2, and uh, more, more recently, um, actually the biggest group of lung cancers have a mutation called uh, KRAS, um, K-R-A-S, and this is a mutation that for, for many, many years was uh, difficult to target with um, in the in the in the field of drug development, and um, actually my colleague uh, Dr. Bodley played a pivotal role in in the team that helped develop one of the first drugs um, that can target a specific subtype of KRAS mutation. So this, the KRAS mutations, specifically in the recent year or two, has been a, uh, an exploding field of uh, research, and we're very excited about the progress in this area. In addition to genetic mutations or protein uh, fusion proteins, there are also certain immunologic biomarkers that we look at in the context of precision medicine. Um, one of the most common ones is something called PDL1, or uh, and the second one is tumor mutation burden or TMB. And these markers can help predict how a patient might respond to immunotherapy. So this, uh, the tumor mutation burden is information that you'll get from the uh, sequencing test itself. And the PDL1 test is generally a stain that can easily be done um, from a slide of your cancer tissue. Uh, so definitely, uh, you know, we see a lot of progress in this area uh, over over the last decade, and as I mentioned more recently in the field of KRAS, so I think the take home um, I think the take home message is really if you are diagnosed with non small cell lung cancer, particularly adenocarcinoma, even in the earlier stage settings, um, getting your cancer tissue tested and having a positive result for one of these mutations may impact your treatment uh, care and also uh, give you treatment options that you previously were not aware of in the context of clinical trials. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to move on to um, the second topic that i like to address today, which is managing side effects, symptoms, pain, and quality of life. And I, I actually want to start with quality of life because I think that that should be the first topic um, that uh, providers address with patients and their families because quality of life can mean different things to different patients. Um, different uh, side effects may bother certain patients more, and everybody has different uh, careers and hobbies. So something that's uh, 
something that might not seem like a big deal to the next person can can uh, can can actually be very um, detrimental to a to to, uh, to a particular patient. So, I think if you you know for patients, one of the most common side effects that we see um, in cancer treatment is peripheral neuropathy, and obviously this is bothersome for almost everyone in terms of your activities of daily living. But if you're in a career or if you're a musician where um, or if you're an artist where tactile uh, sensation is really important to you, I think that these are the these are the details and that that uh, would help the provider better care for you, and in and and let allow them to understand a little bit more about who you are and what's important to you because that may be different for every single um, patient. Um, a lot of uh, treatment centers have um, specific dedicated um, uh, palliative care or supportive care teams, um, uh, which includes pain management. And, uh, you know, the, I think in terms of palliative care, it doesn't necessarily mean um, you're, at, you're at the end of your treatment options, and that's when you should involve them. It just remains a team that's there to help manage your symptoms. And I'm always a, an advocate of getting um, palliative care services on board um, earlier rather than later because it can really help, again, with optimizing your quality of life while you're on treatment. Um, it's really important to report any side effects or symptoms to your team as soon as possible in a way that you know somebody is getting the message. Um, and make sure you know who to contact. Um, one thing that I always tell my patients is, you know, uh, please um, be uh, very diligent with checking your medications and making sure you have enough refills. Um, we never want patients to run out of medicines um, that are necessary and key for helping to manage their symptoms. And finally, in 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 this regard, um, there, in addition to medications, there are actually there are many other ways to help patients manage um, certain symptoms, particularly pain. Um, we, there, are, there's, uh, there are options such as focal radiation. Um, surgery can sometimes be helpful depending on what the actual symptom is. There are certain advanced pain management techniques that uh, an anesthesiologist might be able to do. Um, uh, interventional radiologists can be very helpful in draining um, fluid from the lungs in the setting of pleural effusions. And so um, just keep an open mind. And I think, the, again, the take-home message here is really report your symptoms to your uh, team as, as soon as possible. And then lastly, I just want to cover quickly the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine. Um, which is particularly important in the in uh, in the setting of the current ongoing COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, it, it's I think there are a lot of positives with telemedicine. It helps to keep our patients safe. It helps minimize exposures. It's definitely more convenient. Um, and uh, what I would say is with telemedicine, try to take advantage of video appointments whenever you can. Um, just being for the provider to be able to see you. Um, it's really, really helpful for them to get a sign of what your overall health is, your performance status. Um, there are certain neurological exam maneuvers that they can do in the context of a video visit, skin exams, um, strength exams. And so, so ha definitely having the video component is very, very helpful. I would say that probably the biggest limitation of uh, telemedicine is that we can't really 
the uh, measure vital signs or oxygen levels, which are really important, and track your weight. Um, but I think this is an area that we're also quickly getting around. Um, a lot of patients have their own blood pressure machines, their own pulse oximeter, whether where they can uh, measure uh, oxygen levels and monitor their own weights. A lot of ca uh, cancer treatment centers are also rolling out remote monitoring programs that are very helpful. So definitely ask your provider about all of these services and um, certainly do take advantage of them. Um, I, and finally, I want to say that in terms of the symptoms that you, you know, key questions that you uh, want to ask, um, I think, you know, ask your provider in terms of what are the side effects you should be watching out for in the context of your current treatment. Um, there are certain symptoms that we, you know, want patients to seek care immediately if they have difficulty breathing, chest pain, headaches, back pain, um, not being able to hydrate yourself. Um, we have a very low threshold to see these patients in person or send them to an ER or an urgent care center so that they can be evaluated right away. Um, and I, again, I, I think the take-home message here is try to take advantage of video appointments whenever you can. Try to find out more about the services that are available. And um, having a, a blood pressure machine and a pulse oximeter at home is very uh, can provide very useful information to your um, healthcare team. And um, with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lai. That was really excellent. Really, uh, lots of information and um, a lot. Uh, I know there'll be questions for you, but um, very much a lot for people to absorb and understand, and so critically important um, for treatment decisions about the precision medicine discussion as well. So, thank you. Thanks a lot. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig, and Dr. Rosenzweig is professor and chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, system chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation oncology and types of radiation treatments, how clinical trials contribute to treatment options, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments to increase the benefit their benefit for you. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you again to Cancer Care and to Longevity for putting this program together. Um, I know it's extremely valuable for people on the call uh, to be able to hear a lot of this information firsthand. So I'm a radiation oncologist. So radiation oncology is treating cancer with radiation. So we typically do this with um, these really big machines that we have in our offices, uh, frequently in the basement, uh, just because they're heavy and uh, give off radiation. Uh, you try to keep them out of the way. Um, and in lung cancer, radiation is typically used um, as a replacement for surgery. So if surgery is not possible, if the tumor can't be cut out, uh, we'll give radiation to destroy the cancer um, instead. So some of this has already been alluded to uh, by Dr. Lee a, a little bit earlier. So if someone has an early lung cancer, so this is you know, perhaps a lung cancer that was found on a screening exam or um, found otherwise, but it hasn't spread to any lymph nodes or to um, any different parts of the body. Um, this is a very, very curable situation. So the first option we usually look to is to surgically resect the tumor, uh, cut it out, uh, get rid of it, um, put it in a bucket, and, and get it out of there. 
Um, and we were always trying to get people to be able to have surgery uh, for their early stage lung cancer. Some people aren't healthy enough to have surgery. Um, you know, this, you know, any lung surgery is a major surgery. Um, they're going into the lung, the lung collapses, it's a big stress on the heart. Um, so if someone has a history of heart disease or, or bad lung function, uh, they might not be a candidate for uh, surgery. And in this situation, the radiation would take the place of the surgery. And the techniques for doing lung radiation have improved dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, we used to do literally weeks and weeks of treatment uh, for people. Um, it would be very involved. And now we can typically do an entire curative course of radiation in just three to four treatments, uh, all as an outpatient, so all done essentially within a week. Um, and uh, someone's cancer can be completely cured uh, just really in a, a you know, half-hour treatment uh, a, per day for about you know, four days or so. So that's really been a remarkable advance in how we treat lung cancer, and that's been very successful and really almost as successful as surgery. Uh, some people think it's even uh, better than surgery, though that, that's still being looked at in some of the research protocols. So in situations where the tumor is more advanced, so it has spread to the lymph nodes, and this would be a, a locally advanced lung cancer, um, we, radiation by itself is typically not going to be enough, and we have to get chemotherapy involved. So as uh, Dr. Lee was uh, uh, um, teaching us a little bit earlier, you know, we typically want to do chemotherapy and radiation at the same time. Uh, and again, the radiation is replacing the role of surgery. So uh, instead of cutting the tumor out, we're going to irradiate all areas that have tumor and uh, kill it with uh, the radiation um, just by itself. The chemotherapy is extremely advantageous at this time, and, and we usually want to do it at the same time as the radiation um, because it, it, it helps the radiation uh, you know, uh, be more effective at the tumor itself, and of course can um, destroy any cancer cells that might have uh, escaped to other parts of the body, but we just don't know about them yet. So if there are a couple of cells um, in a different organ, uh, potentially the chemotherapy uh, can destroy those cells there, and, and they never become a problem uh, from, from the treatment. And one thing we've learned just in the past uh, four years is that at the, after you've done the chemotherapy and radiation, if you give immunotherapy, uh, that seems to help even more, and uh, more people are cured, and more people are living longer. Um, so just as Dr. Lee was saying earlier, it's really a very exciting and uh, encouraging time in the treatment of lung cancer. Uh, when I first started um, my clinical practice about 25 years ago, um, you know, uh, the success stories were, were, were not that frequent, and now we're seeing people uh, living their full lives years and years after their therapy um, and just really doing well. Uh, so it's been a very, very exciting time to be a practitioner in this. Um, and this has all come, up, uh, come to play uh, through clinical trials, and this is really what helps us, uh, you know, figure out the best ways um, to, to treat people. So, for, ex for example, I was uh, just discussing that, you know, we now know that giving immunotherapy after 
chemo and radiation is helping people live longer with advanced lung cancer. We know that because a clinical trial was done where there's a, uh, there's a large group of uh, people with lung cancer, and essentially there's a coin flip. If it's heads, you get the new treatment. If it's tails, um, you get a placebo or no treatment, and then you see who did better at the end. So uh, clinical trials are very important uh, to have progress in lung cancer, and um, we try to offer the, uh, an appropriate clinical trial for everyone who comes in. And it's very important to do these trials because um, treatments that you might think are beneficial, sometimes they, they aren't, and th there's no point in giving someone an extra treatment if it's not going to help them live longer. Um, it's just going to cause side effects and inconvenience. Um, so we really need to figure it out in, in what we call a, a double-blind and randomized control trial. Um, and that's how we, we make advances. So... Um, you know, um, a lot of the new medicines, new chemotherapies, are first found through clinical trials, uh, frequently in people who um, might have less options than when they first present with cancer. So it makes a little sense to try uh, new therapies uh, for them to see if they have any benefit. But even for people with highly curable disease, we're always making um, small tweaks to how we how we do the care and to try to try to get improvement. And all the trials are designed to really limit the amount of uh, side effects uh, for people so, and, and, um, and not expose them to any undue risk. So you know, you, typically you're never going to get an unsafe treatment in a clinical trial. A lot of effort is made to make sure that uh, which, whichever uh, medicine you get or any treatment paradigm you get, it's going to be a safe treatment. So I do encourage people to consider clinical trials when they when they speak to their doctor. And finally, as, as we all know, um, the coronavirus pandemic has upended uh, every aspect of life, and um, telehealth is now a major part of how doctors uh, provide their care. So, you know, before um, any telehealth visit, I, I recommend people uh, first of all check your technology and. Uh, even, even myself, who uh, it seems that I'm on uh, Zoom calls and other uh, calls uh, way too many hours a day, um, I still make mistakes with uh, not connecting well, uh, not having the right headset available, not signing into audio, not having the good video. So it's just worthwhile because uh, you know once the appointments start, um, you know the, the, you might have some anxiety in, in, in getting it set up. Uh, so just you know, checking even just a few minutes before that, that all the connections are working well and you have a good signal and things like that. And otherwise, a lot of it is like um, a typical uh, doctor's visit. But one thing just to make sure is you know, uh, the doctor can't really see you and get a, a great sense of, of how you're doing. So, um, so you might need to give some more information. Like, for example, one thing that's uh, very important is to assess how well someone moves. If you're, if you're um, very difficult getting around, that might affect whether you're a surgical candidate or a radiation candidate. So you need to let the doctor know if there are some things that they might not be able to see. So if you need a cane or some other walking aid, yeah, we're not going to see that in the room with you like we would if you if you came to one of our clinics. So I think it's important to uh, inform 
the team that there, there might be some things that we don't realize. Um, you know, we, we try to be very smart, but uh, we, uh, we, we aren't able to read minds or, or look beyond uh, the phone to see what's going on. Uh, so thank you once again uh, for uh, the ability to speak to you, and I wish everyone uh, well and a happy holiday season. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was an excellent presentation, wonderful information for everybody, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Diana Bearden is a dietitian. She's an oncology dietitian at Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of lung cancer. Nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment and providing the energy to do the things you enjoy. Your diet may be modified during um, and or after your cancer treatment to assist with managing side effects that you may experience. Some of the potential side effects include dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, decreased appetite, and fatigue. During your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can increase. Um, this may require a change in your diet, um, immune some of the foods that you eat. Um, if you're not able to meet your nutrition goals, it can impact um, your overall health and possibly result in a delay in treatment. So it's very important that you stay in touch with your healthcare team and communicate any changes or issues that you're experiencing. A dietitian um, will be on staff with your healthcare team as part of your healthcare team and can provide you with information on ways to modify your diet, even give you specific information on your calorie, protein, and fluid needs. And um, Staying in connection with her throughout your treatment because things can change along the way is very important. Something I always like to remind patients is even if you're overweight, you can become malnourished. Um, when nutritional needs are not met, the body uses protein and muscle for energy. This can result in increased fatigue. It can decrease your endurance, impacting your ability to have the energy to do the things that you are used to doing. In general, a plant-based diet is recommended. This translates into having about two-thirds of your plate from a plant-based food, such as a whole grain, fruit, vegetable, nut, or seed. Plant-based foods provide antioxidants and phytochemicals. Fresh or frozen are the best forms of a plant-based food, and incorporating a variety of colors is key. The other third of your plate should be from a lean protein. Examples for that would be like a wild-caught fish, typically cold water, um, would provide even more nourishment with its healthy fats, such as halibut, salmon, or tuna, even sardines. But poultry and beans are also great options to put into that lean protein category. Protein is the building blocks for all of our cells and tissues, so it's very important in your healing and your recovery from treatment. There might be a need for you to take a supplement or modify your diet, like we spoke about a minute ago, but don't go out and buy supplements on your own. Talk with your healthcare team about them. They may seem harmless and friends may take them and um, you don't really know 100% exactly what's in some products. So it's always good to run it by your healthcare team to determine what's the best product for you. 
Hydration is also very important in your cancer care. Um, if you're dehydrated, you can increase nausea, fatigue, and even make you feel really dizzy and have headaches. Fluids are anything that is liquid at room temperature, so milk, water, sports drinks, juice. A general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Remember, if you're experiencing any side effects, having trouble with eating, getting in what you need, noticing weight loss, to notify your healthcare team, talk with them, and work with your dietitian. It's so important for you to get all that you need during your cancer care to help you through this journey. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Bearden. That was excellent, really, um, and uh, very helpful. And I know that everyone is always interested in nutrition and what they can eat and very excellent tips for people, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is... Ms. Donna Wilson. Ms. Wilson is an, um, is an oncology nurse. She is a clinical fitness specialist, Integrative Medicine Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, founder and head coach, Empire Dragon Boat Team, BCS, ACS. And Ms. Wilson is going to be addressing the importance of the important role of movement, and I'm going to turn this program over to uh, Ms. Wilson. She has some wonderful things to tell you. Ms. Wilson? Thank you very much, Carolyn, and, and the whole team. Um, yes, uh, my tagline, just so you know, is keep moving. One of the most important things that I want to really expound on is that when you think about breathing, you breathe because of the muscles of your chest wall. So when you start to do an activity and you feel like you're getting short of breath, you might, you might have to just do it slowly, but we're going to go through a few things. But the most important thing I want you to really get from this few minutes is that you need to keep moving. As we have heard, the treatments are better, longevity is better, you know, and who wants to be, after all the treatment is, and the doctor says you're doing well, to not be able to do anything and move and not enjoy family and friends. So the key is, is through this whole process, even try to do the most basic things. Um, so I think that when I look at the side effects of treatment, I look at the loss of muscle mass and fatigue and pain and anxiety. Um, and then I can tell you from the other side, from exercise, and you could be, you could call it movement, you could call it exercise, you could call it fitness. It doesn't matter. What you do is you get stronger, you improve your muscle strength, you might decrease your anxiety and depression. Just recently, another study came out and showed that weight training decreases anxiety and depression in people. So I think there's so much out there. The other thing is we have done a fair amount of research, not as much in other, other cancers, but enough to tell you that patients that have lung cancer, we have shown that it put them in a six or an eight week program that they've increased their muscle strength and their and their reduction and we've reduced their fatigue. And overall they were able to do their activities of daily living. So when I think of that, I think of upper body strength training, I do cardio fitness and strength training. But again, all of these have to be coordinated with your breath. So first of all, the most important thing is think about always you breathe in through your nose and blow out through your lips. But when you're doing an exercise, I want, really want you to exhale. So when you exhale, you get the power to do the exercise. So let's stop here for a second and talk about upper body weight training. 
You can do one weight. You could do a two weights. You could take two bottles of water. It doesn't matter. If you're taking those things and putting them over your head, which is a shoulder press, I want you to breathe out to lift that weight and try to do the repetitions. Doesn't matter. I don't want you to do it fast. I want you to do it slow so that you really can gain some muscle mass. The other thing to remember when you look at muscle strength is that when you do nothing, when you're in treatment and you feel fatigued, the first muscle to go is the muscle in your thigh called the quadricep. So that's why it's so hard to get out of a chair or so hard to climb stairs. So now what I was saying is that do something like doing a chair squat. You can look that up online and just do a chair squat. Go up and down. But make sure when you leave your buttocks from that chair, you breathe out and you use those leg muscles. The stronger you get those leg muscles, the more you're going to be able to function even in the um, the, the the in your home or wherever you are. I'm just, you know, again, we're also isolated right now. The other thing is stair climbing. I know uh, many years ago I did a lot of research with lung patients and I would take them to the stairs and they would say, oh, I'm not doing that. Well, in fact, what happens is if you do the stair climbing the correct way, you can really do it. So if you put one foot on that step and you breathe out and you go up to the next step, all of a sudden the power of breathing out will get you up to that step. Do it slow and do it mindful. The other thing is do some easy stretching. And because the muscles are really the foundation, you're going to have better balance, you better mobility, you're going to improve your performance. So it's really important to stay strong and to have some muscle strength. I know at this time now with COVID, it's overwhelming, but I do Zoom classes for for hundreds of people um, during the day, and I think that it's been really helpful I uh, to get them out. Um, they come to me three, four times a week via Zoom in the privacy of their home, and it works. There's lots of things to do online. So take a look online and look at them. Look up lung exercise and see if you can find something that um, we can provide you. I'm open, uh, available if you ever need me from integrated medicine. But most importantly, please keep moving. And remember, exercise is part of your medical treatment. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Wilson, because I think um, it's a very important message to give to everyone, and I I hope you all heard this, and I hope you'll take advantage of the suggestions made, work with your healthcare team, and uh, and thank you. Thanks a lot. And I guess I'm going to repeat now the tagline of keep moving, very important for all of us on the call, and very important. And our next speaker is Ms. Katie Brown, and Ms. Brown is Vice President, Support and Super... Survivorship Program, Longevity Foundation. And Longevity Foundation actually has partnered with Cancer Care on this program and um, has done a tremendous amount of work and so services for the lung cancer community. And we're, we're really honored to have uh, Ms. Brown speaking on the program today. And she will be addressing Longevity Foundation's free programs and services. And um, so I am delighted now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague and and a collaborator and partner on this today's program, Miss um, Katie Brown. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, and to the colleagues on this program, thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Um, I'm also a cancer patient, a former lung cancer caregiver, and I've been a lung cancer advocate for over 18 years. So I understand personally how vital practical and psychosocial support are for patients and their families, especially now during the pandemic, 
when so many of our patients are re- reporting to us feelings of isolation and anxiety and depression. Um, so these resources are, are extremely vital. Longevity's initiatives position us as thought leaders in the lung cancer advocacy community, and we provide personalized support, survivorship programs, and drive change for those with lung cancer today and in the future. We also have the largest virtual network of lung cancer support and in-person survivorship programs. And I'd like to quickly highlight four of those support services for you. To quote one of our first peer mentors, um, he said that the support that you get is almost as important as the medicine that you are receiving. And we definitely believe that that is in partnership and a collaborative effort. One of our resources is the Lung Cancer Helpline, which we partner through with Cancer Care. We offer toll-free personalized support for patients and caregivers at any time along the lung cancer journey. The oncology social workers can help manage emotional, financial, and support challenges. And that number is 844-360-5864. We also have something called the Lung Cancer Support Community, and it's a dedicated social network offering support to anyone touched by lung cancer. Then, like other social platforms, the LCSC is all about lung cancer with multiple topics and forums. You can create your own blog. We have over 450,000 posts. We also have something called Lifeline Support Partners Program, where it's managed by an oncology patient navigator, and we offer one-on-one support by matching patients to survivors and caregivers to other caregiver mentors who have had similar life experiences. Lifeline Support Partners can be vital to those newly diagnosed, um, to those who have had a recurrence. Anyone can request a mentor by visiting our website. We also have clinical trial mentors as well, and these are lung cancer survivors who have participated in a clinical trial, and they volunteer to offer encouragement and, and to share their experience to other patients who might be considering enrolling in a study. We also provide supporters and advocates the opportunity to participate on our social platforms, to connect with each other, to raise awareness about lung cancer, the importance of lung cancer research, and changing how people treat and live with the disease. So in conclusion, I hope you'll visit us at www.longevity.org to learn more and to connect with us if we can offer you any support in any way. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Brown. And what a wonderful, uh, uh, just a wonderful array of services uh, and programs that you offer, and, and plus your own sharing of your own experiences and how important it is to access these services. So thank you so much, and um, thanks. Thank you so much. And our next uh, speaker is Mr. Wynn Burkle, and uh, Mr. Burkle is Director of Social Service, Long Island, Lung Cancer Program Coordinator, Cancer Care. And he will be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. It's my pleasure today to update everyone on the many services Cancer Care provides for lung cancer patients, survivors, and those who care for them. Founded in 1944, Cancer Care is a leading national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include regional counseling and support groups, national professionally facilitated online support groups available 24-7, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. 
Cancer Care Now also provides free national case management services to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term, strength-based approach to case management where our oncology social workers work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and Cancer Care's limited financial assistance program and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Foundation. Cancer Care has developed a special lung cancer website, www.lungcancer.org, designed as a first stop for people who find themselves in the new and strange world of lung cancer. Using easy-to-understand language, lungcancer.org helps patients and caregivers know about lung cancer screening, detection and diagnosis, its types, stages and treatments, and post-treatment follow-up. Cancer Care's user-friendly main website page, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available free of charge for cancer patients and those who care for them. Cancer Care's free connection education workshops, like this afternoon's event, were pioneered in 1988 and offer a robust array of topics for people to learn about living with cancer from the convenience of their home, office, and commute. Leading experts in oncology provide the most up-to-date information over the phone or via live streaming to patients, survivors, their caregivers, and healthcare professionals. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's main website, www.cancercare.org, or via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players for listening on the commutes. Our educational outreach also provides Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care booklets and fact sheets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. To date, we've distributed several million of these very popular publications. While one is at our website, www.cancercare.org, they may also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care support services are provided by its professionally trained, experienced oncology social workers who are always pleased to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer. If you're interested in learning even more about the services Cancer Care offers, we encourage you to call the Cancer Care National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 and explore the ways in which we can help you with the lung cancer-focused support and resources. Thank you, be well, and be safe. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Mr. Burko. Excellent presentation. And um, we're going to um, move into the Q&A in just a minute. I just have a few last-minute questions to ask each of you. So for those of you who are live streaming the program, I'm going to start with the question, uh, the following question. And for those of you live streaming, will be able to see the question. I'll read it, and if you could just respond to it. As a result of this workshop, I better understand the treatment choices for lung cancer, yes or no. And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand the role of radiation oncology for lung cancer, yes or no?
And the last question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand how to manage side effects, symptoms, pain, and quality of life concerns, yes or no? Thank you all for actually participating in this. Um, it gives us a sense of, of, of your knowledge now leaving this program is, is, uh, before we enter the Q&A. So we're now going to have a question and answer time, and I'm going to ask um, Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board and uh, explain to all of you that queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, this will be for Dr. Lai. Do cancer patients typically do this next generation sequencing or does the patient need to ask that it be done? Um, so for most providers, they will they should send it off, but it certainly doesn't hurt to talk to your provider about it. Um, for non-small cell lung cancer, particularly adenocarcinoma, it's, it's certainly considered standard of care. Um, one of the common, uh, one of the most, I think, popular uh, companies that offer uh, next-generation sequencing for lung cancer is, some, is a company called Foundation Medicine, as some of you might be familiar with, but uh, there are other ones as well. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, next question for uh, Dr. Rosenzweig. How many times can a patient receive radiation treatment over the course of their, their life? Um, so that's a great question. So to, um, it really depends on which part of the body is receiving the radiation the second time. So, for example, a man who's received radiation to his prostate and then has, um, you know, might need radiation to his lung, there's really no interaction there. So um, th that could be done without really any difficulty if the same area or the same organ needs to be treated again, you have to take special consideration to try to limit the side effects. So it's a very uh, individualized uh, answer at that point. Um, if you have to give radiation to the second area twice or if the lung by itself is reaching its limit. Um, so it's, it's a, uh, each situation is its own unique problem. Oftentimes, when we have to give radiation to the same area a second time, we'll use a special type of radiation called proton radiation, uh, which isn't always necessary for someone who's getting radiation the first time, but it's very good at avoiding critical structures, so it might be very helpful if repeat re radiation needs to be done. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And a question for Dr. Dr. Lee. Um, so patient, um, and this is a personal question, but if you could answer it in a general way, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in December 2018, um, have had six treatments of chemo and have been given Keytruda since then every three weeks. This December, it will be two years on Keytruda. My scans are clear. So uh, the question is, how long do does this person continue on Keytruda or, or in general, just in terms of the um, amount of time people may be taking this particular? So if you could answer this in a general way, um, since 
um, this is, would be a good question to ask one, the person's own physician, but if there's anything you can say that might help this person pose the question to their health care provider. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mesmer. Uh, this is a great result from the uh, science of immunotherapy, which basically uh, was uh, 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 that science was awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine uh, in 2018. And, uh, and now we are seeing the, uh, uh, the fruits of that scientific labor in patients, uh, where you rev up the immune system and when the immune cells go after the cancer and attack it, and now this is an example of a, uh, a long-term uh, response after two years, this is a fantastic result. Now, of course, uh, how long do you consider it can continue if you treat a four is, a, is really an individualized decision. You need to talk to the, um, uh, your medical oncologist, and this has to take into account the tolerability, any side effects of Keytruda, uh, and the, uh, the burden of disease to begin with, and then have a, have a discussion. The clinical trials have uh, uh, stopped Keytruda after two years and, and, and had, had patients on observation. So that's certainly an option for some patients, whereas others would simply continue on. So uh, this is very individualized, but I, I think these are all great options to consider, and it's great to have these uh, uh, to be discussing that with your oncologist at this point. So, uh, and I, I would echo uh, the uh, messages from uh, uh, my colleagues uh, with Diana, with Donna, uh, 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 and others uh, about uh, the importance of keeping up your nutrition, your hydration, and exercise to uh, optimize your body's immune system and continue to live your life in full. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and um, a question for uh, Ms. Wilson. So um, I am constantly tired, but my doctor suggested that exercise will improve my fatigue. Is that correct? And could you comment a little bit on that? Sure. I, I think it will, but I think monitor it closely. It's not going to be that you're going to feel like you did pre-treatment. I think that if you look at a scale of 1 to 10 and say, oh, my fatigue, you know, is is um four is six today but if i start to exercise and i get some more strength in my body and i have more mobility then your fatigue level may be a little bit less but yes it does improve that exercise performance i have uh, many people that tell me they still get tired maybe at four o'clock in the afternoon but if they put their feet up and rest for a half hour, then they can get up and enjoy the rest of the evening. But it's very important to maintain the muscle strength because what happens is that by having that those muscles strong, you'll have the ability to do things. Um, and uh, it's also about breathing. You breathe because of the muscles in the diaphragm of your chest wall. So it's really important to maintain it. And it's consistency. There's three things that's so important about exercise. It's put the time in, be consistent and be patient with the results. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And this will be our final question for Dr. Lee. Are there lung cancer clinical trials available during the pandemic? Absolutely. The, uh, we have leveraged uh, the power of technology to continue our clinical trial operations throughout the pandemic, even during the peak of it. Uh, and uh, a lot of it is done through telehealth and telemedicine as described by Dr. Lai. 
uh, I myself have done remote clinical trial monitoring by telehealth for patients living very far away and cannot come to New York City because it was in the, at the peak of its pandemic and we were still able to deliver pills uh, to their the patients' homes on the clinical drug uh, trial with FDA uh, guidance. So uh, uh, yes, and, and this is a time of innovation and I think uh, a lot of this technology is here to stay. So clinical trials need to continue and that's uh, critical for the war on cancer. Excellent, thank you. Well, I wanna thank all of our speakers. Um, you've been phenomenal. And I have to say that there's actually, um, I know there are many more questions in queue, but we, we had told all of you that this would be a one hour program and that in keeping with that, um, we definitely want to um, stay within that time frame. Um, and so I have a couple of comments to make as we conclude. I wanna first of all, thank our speakers. They've been phenomenal. And I wanna thank all of our participants who also asked such incredible questions that really enhanced the call in, many, in so many ways so that we can get to some of your questions. So for those of you who asked questions and for those of you who still have questions to ask, we ask you to, to ask, go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the questions as well because you've gotten some information today, but we want you to take that information and go back to your treating healthcare team and see how everything you've learned today applies to you specifically because they know the most about each of you, of course, um, than we can possibly know on an hour program in terms of the, in the, in the brief amount of time for the questions that we have. Nevertheless, we hope that the opportunity to ask questions or see people asking questions is a role model for you in terms of asking questions and, and the permission, and you can see the enthusiasm that our speakers have in addressing your questions. That's really important. I also want to remind all of you that if you have lots of questions for your physician, that might be a good opportunity for a telehealth or telemedicine visit with them to schedule time to actually talk and to go through all of your questions, or if you're coming in for an appointment, to let them know that you have a lot of questions that you're going to want to ask. That's really important as well. Um, I do want to remind you that between Cancer Care and the Longevity Foundation, there's a lot of resources for you, and we hope that you'll take advantage of them. It is very tempting at this time, very actually real at this time, for most people to feel alone. And so we do know that you all live in different parts of the, of the country, the United States, and different parts of the world, and that there are moments when you feel terribly alone, as if there's no one there for you. And I want you to know that there, it's true that that feeling of alone is a, is a real feeling that everybody has, but I also want you to know that you are now also connected to organizations that could provide a lot of resources and help to you. And we also have a number of collaborating organizations that we work with that are also uh, great resources for you. Um, and so we're going to, when you get the, at the end of the program, you're going to get a survey monkey evaluation. And in that, there will be actually, um, uh, there's a bit of an evaluation of the program, but it's also going to be a whole listing of resources um, for you. And we hope that you'll take maximum, um, uh, you know, take advantage of them. They are free. We're also entering into a time of year, which for some people is considered to be a holiday time of year. And even if it's not your holiday, it's still that, that feeling of that. And some of you are being alone or not being able to get together with family. Again, we want you to know that there are, again, places that you can call so that you can feel connected, even if it's on the phone or if it's um, emailing someone or, you know, all the different technologies out there so you can connect with people but not physically be with them. That's that's also very important um, in, at this point in time. So I want to, again, thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes the workshop, and we now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.